One of the prophets of the Old Testament said about a certain king, he shall murder this king. And the response to that accusation and prediction was, is thy servant a dog that he would do this thing? Then Matthew Henry says, dog or no dog, he did it. I want you to put that little anecdote with the story of David who having committed adultery and been responsible for murder was told by Nathan the story of the man that stole the little ewe lamb. And David said, the man that did that will repay fourfold. He thought it had to be some terrible dark dyed villain at least five miles from the palace. And then you remember that Nathan said, thou art the man. When we read the Bible, we shouldn't read it with a pitchfork. That fits my neighbour, that fits pastor so-and-so, that fits sister so-and-so, that fits brother so-and-so. We should read the Bible with a fork. That fits me. There's no experience in Scripture which in principle has not, is not, or could not overtake us. No experience in Scripture which in principle has not, is not, or could not overtake us. The Bible is the word of life. Its characters are not dead. They are present in every congregation. The twelve apostles sit before me tonight, and I'm one of them. Or we're a mixture of several of them. The Bible is the word of life is a living panorama of what's going on in the hearts and minds and lives of everybody, particularly of professed Believers. Beginning in Genesis, we see how we are pictured. If I'd written it up, you'd have been mystified but not edified. For 20 years of the college, I used chalk to rivet attention, not to teach. Because I am left hand, back hand and bad hand. But Jill is artistic, so she's put it up so you can read it. You are now edified instead of mystified. Here are the seven dominant characters of the book of Genesis. There are other characters that come into the story like Melchizedek and Enoch, but these are the ones to whom most space is given among the saints. Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the order in which they come because that is the story of our lives. We all are born in Adam. We are all born rebels. Nobody's born good. Holiness doesn't run in the blood. We are all born in Adam. The life of sin and rebellion. Marked out for death. You know, Genesis is a book that begins with the living God and finishes with a coffin. Read the last verse. Because it's the book of sin. So Adam represents where we all start. But Abel, who fights with Cain, who differs in his approach to God, who trusts only in the blood and not in what he raises with his own hands. Abel typifies the life of conflict. A person is worth something once the conflict begins within themselves. So long as you're fighting other people and not yourself, you're not worth a dollar. Not worth a dollar. As soon as the conflict is within oneself, as soon as one's chief battles are within, one is on the way to glory. You know, the Buddha once said, if a great general overcomes thousands and thousands of enemies. He is a great man. But if a man can overcome himself, he is much greater. 
And you know the Old Testament and the New teach that. The man who can rule his own spirit is better than he that taketh the city. And we all know it inside because we all have lots of problems with this. Who is there that's always cheerful, always hopeful, always trustful, always thankful? <laughs> not me. Not me. That's an ideal. I'm not there. Long way from it. But I want to get there. So Abel represents a life of conflict that happens with conversion. With conversion, the fight with oneself begins and never ends in this life. You remember Moody said, I have more trouble with myself than any other man I've ever met. Boy, I like that. I have more trouble with myself than any other man. I look in the mirror, I see my worst enemy. Every day I shave him. Noah, if the night slips, I deserve it. Noah, he represents the life of salvation. He enters into the ark. Now, remember the ark is made of wood. Remember it's the result of soaring and hammering and battering. And remember its side is opened. And remember that the waters from beneath batter it. And the waters from above batter it. And it's lashed by the waves. Beautiful figure of Christ. The ark of the covenant. The Ark of Noah both typify Christ. He was God's Ark in which was the law of God. Thy law is within my heart. And all the things that happened in preparing that one way of salvation, the Ark, typify the sufferings of Christ. The soaring, the hammering, the lashing, the open side. So Noah entering into the Ark represents full salvation. Abel begins it. But Noah, he takes the step and he's in. Abraham's is a life of faith. If you read his life, he's got seven separations. He separates from where he lives. He separates from his immediate family. And later on, he separates from Lot. He's, he's got separation all the way as by faith he goes out not knowing whither he goes. Dear friends, after you enter into Christ, that is life. And sometimes when by the mercy of God, by some accident, I am more trusting than others, I think when I take off on some trip around the world, what a glorious privilege. I've got no idea what's going to happen, but the dear Lord knows. Jill always says, I don't know how you get home. You get lost anywhere. And how you get home from going around the world, I've got no idea. Well, the answer is the Lord. The answer is the Lord. It's true, I get lost in the phone box. <laughs> Abraham's is the life of faith. He gets out not knowing whither he goes. Dear friends, we all do that in a sense. You know the most dangerous thing, I'm not talking spiritually now, but physically, the most dangerous thing each one of us does every day, step into a car, not in front of one. Step into one. The chances are approximately one in three of every person that ever used a car having an accident in this country. One in three, an accident brings injury. That's a pretty high proportion. If I was told crossing this road, there's 33%. Chance I was going to have an accident, I'd go the other way. See? Life is a dangerous affair, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. But the believer's asked to go unusual paths sometimes. The believer has to go places where the worldling won't go. And that takes faith. The believer may be asked to separate from this or from that that's evil. Or that is even, has the appearance of evil. Sometimes it's not so hard giving up evil as giving up things that might look evil. And the believer's asked to do that. That's a walk of faith. So once one's in the ark, you're still travelling and you're travelling by faith. Isaac's is the life of sonship. Here's this young man. His father's a hundred. He could easily have overpowered him. 
dad tells his son, son, sorry, this is your last day. But I believe God will resurrect you. No, the book of Hebrews says that in the 11th chapter. That Abraham believed God would raise his son from the dead. So Abraham tells his dad, uh, his son, this is your last day, but I believe God will resurrect you. My, you'd have to be a pretty good son to go along with that. If my father had tried that on me, I'd have left. I wouldn't have followed into that. Not for a second. Not for a second. But Isaac's willing submission to be a sacrifice represents the life of sonship in every true converted Christian. Sacrifice is the keynote. But it's always a sacrifice with a reason, with a purpose and with a fruitage. And always a sacrifice that ultimately brings joy. God's orders Calvary, then Resurrection Sunday. It's always the theology of the cross before the theology of glory. Without the torn flesh, there can be no glorified body. Without the crown of thorns, there can never be a crown of glory. Without crucifixion, there can never be resurrection. And so sacrifice and submission, Isaac, the life of sonship, manifested by willing sacrifice. Then Jacob. You remember he spent so many years for this lass and so many years for that lass. They only seem a few days for the love that he has to her and so on. You know the story of Jacob. But service is what stands out apart from his crookedness. His crookedness was changed when he encounters God at Peniel, when he wrestles, acknowledges his weakness, falls despairingly on the breast of infinite love and says, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. And he's given the name of Israel a prince with God because he's learned to hold on in his weakness. And I love the way it says that when the sun rose, he went limping out of that glen where he battled with the Lord. He was still limping. We're never whole in this life. We always limp still. Always. But anyway, Jacob's is the life of service. He says, I've served so many years for this and so many years for that. Ah, but when you come to Joseph, what a life is this one. Hated by his own brothers, cast into a pit, sold off to the Midianite merchantman, betrayed by a woman because he refused to commit adultery with her, down into a prison, Forgotten for years, the iron entered into his soul, says Holy Writ. And then what a marvellous reversal. You remember the butler and the baker, one was saved and the other lost? Like Jesus and his suffering, there were two and one was saved and the other lost. And you remember that Joseph had said to the one that was uh, going to be exalted, remember me, I pray thee, remember me. This is what our crucified Lord asks us to do. Do this in remembrance of me. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. That's what the record says. Human nature. We're good at forgetting the things we don't want to remember. If I have a dozen duties in, in the day, and the three that are particularly nasty I don't want to do, I find it very easy for them to slip out of memory. I find it very easy to be busy about the other seven. See, Human nature is treacherous. I find myself rationalising every day of the week. And you've got to catch yourself out at it and, and nip it in the bud. Because we're all born rationalizers, every one of us. But anyway, here's Joseph, down, 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 down. And then after years of suffering, probably something like about 13 years, he's the same age of Jesus when he becomes the saviour of the world, when Jesus became the saviour of the world. Approximately the age of Jesus when he comes on the scene at his baptism. And then what a difference. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. 
Unto thee every knee shall bow. The very words of the New Testament are found in the story of Joseph. He sends a message to the brethren that sold him. Come unto me. They're the words. Come unto me and I will nourish you. Regard not your stuff. For the good of the whole land is yours. What a beautiful picture. Christ invites us to come. Don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about your stuff. He can give us much more than that. The good of the whole land is yours. So there is one illustration from Genesis of our life story. And whenever we read the Bible devotionally, there are two pictures we should be looking for. His and ours. Whenever we see our own, it will drive us to look at his. Because the scene, you know, when a person first finds out the truth about themselves, there are only two options. One is suicide and the other is Christ. Once you find the truth out about yourself, they're the options. Suicide, Christ. Because we're a weak lot. We're a weak lot. Unless the Lord help us, there is no hope for us. We're a weak lot. So whenever we read scripture, don't ever read it as though it was just back there. It's the word of life. It is alive and throbbing with vitality. And it's personal. It enters in like a, the piercings of a two-edged sword. And we're to read it as though we're hearing Nathan saying, Thou art the man. Hear the echo from Matthew Henry about King Hazel. Dog or no dog, he did it. He didn't think he could, you see. We're all capable of many things we don't think we're capable of. And I have more than once come home at the end of the day after saying something or doing something I shouldn't have done, looked in the mirror and said, Did you really say that? Did you really do that? Yes, I really did. We don't know ourselves. The depths, the blackness, the mystery of the human heart is deeper than any well any man has ever dug. Deeper. But the heights of glory that are possible are higher than any man has ever gone, cosmonaut or not. So, there's our life. We begin sinful, guilty, condemned to death. The Spirit of God begins to move on us and we begin to fight with evil. And taking hold of Christ, we enter into the full arc of salvation by faith and we rest in him. Now begins a life of faithfulness, a constant demand to walking by faith. This is where we learn that he's a living saviour. It is wonderful and right we should emphasise the cross of Christ. But we should remember that in the New Testament, cross and resurrection go together. Theologically, it's the cross-resurrection event. And while we should over keep preeminent as the sun in the sky, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember he's not on the cross now. He's a living saviour. And walking by faith is a matter of exposing every situation to him. God in his providence constantly brings us into situations too big for us. That's when you say, well, Lord, here I am again. And you know I'm a no-hoper. You've got to help me with this or it's not going to be done. See, This is living by faith admitting our inabilities for the task that God faces us with and then we find him sufficient. And then Isaac, faith always leads to sonship and sonship always leads to service. The man that has most faith in Christ is most earnest and working for him. There's no such thing as a lazy Christian, not unless they're sick. We forgive everything to the sick. Then Joseph, suffering with glory to follow, please don't reverse the order. There's a great tendency in Christianity, particularly in this country, if you'll forgive my saying it, more in this country than any country in the world, because this is the country of prosperity. But there's a great tendency in this country just to have the Christian life all glory. Miracles scattered along the way like stars in the heavens. 
prosperity. You know, they call it the health and wealth gospel. All sorts of titles for it. But it's very popular on television. That if you become a Christian, all your troubles are over. You'll be healthy and wealthy. Dear friends, that's not the New Testament picture of the Christian life. New Testament picture of the Christian life means inevitable conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil. And glory to follow. There'll be glimpses of glory here and now. Just to know that we're loved. That's glorious. And my, what a family of friends you make. Jill and I often talk about our friends. They're our real riches apart from what we have in Christ himself. Our friends. We feel so blessed. And every Christian has that experience. If you're not a Christian, if you can number three or four close friends, you're doing well. That's it. That's it. When you're a Christian, the whole family of God. Wonderful family. So, there's one way. Now suppose, and we won't ask you to put this up, but you can get these names clear enough. The first six books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's next? Okay, Joshua. That also is like this, our story. Genesis, the book that introduces sin and finishes with a coffin, is the book of the fall and rebellion. That's where we start. But Exodus is the book of redemption. You know what Exodus means. Exode, go out. Exodus is leaving the place of bondage and idolatry and darkness and taskmasters and going out by the blood of the Lamb and we're on our way to glory. We're on our way to the heavenly Canaan. So Exodus represents conversion when we hear about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The bondage in Egypt represents what it is to be a worldling. You know, a Christian has problems. (laughs) I can't imagine how I could tolerate life if I wasn't a Christian. The person that's not a Christian may seem to have glamour, may seem to have pleasure, but it never endures well. It never lasts well. The path of the worldling is the opposite of the path of the Christian. The Christian path gets brighter and brighter under a perfect day. The worldlings, like Nebuchadnezzar's image, begins with gold and ends with mud. That's the way the, the worldlings' life is. Gold and glamour and youth, and then it gradually deteriorates. Gold to silver to brass to iron to mud. Things don't get better. It seemed to me that the elderly people I saw in Russia were about the most depressed people I've ever met. I thought constantly of Thoreau's statement, the majority of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That is so true in Russia. You know, the main concern in Russia is not the lack of consumer goods. The main concern is cynicism. The people have been lied to and lied to and lied to. Decade after decade after decade, they've been lied to. They weren't told about the inter-ethnic strife that was taking place. They weren't told about the true state of the economy. They were told things were worse in America and everywhere else. They were never told the truth. Then came Glasnost and the the breaks are taken off the press and off writers and playwrights and men like Havel and others begin to write the truth. And the Russian people say, we've been had. And the spirit of cynicism is so rife that the only enthusiastic young people in Russia are Christian young people. They feel that they have learnt that the only way to get on is by graft and compromise and knowing someone in a high place. That's a terrible feeling to have. So the worldling's life, while it has brightness in the early years, gradually deteriorates. I wouldn't want that for anything. So Exodus is saying, look, come out of the bondage. It is a bondage to be in under 
the taskmasters of bad habits. I don't just mean alcoholism. I don't just mean things of that nature. But moodiness, selfishness, lack of sympathy, all these are vices that are natural to us until we're converted. And they're taskmasters. A miserable person doesn't glow like a light. They repel. You know, you've got to have a self that's worth giving to make life worth living. Our ordinary self isn't worth giving. Only Christ can make us have a true self that's worth giving. So Exodus says, come out of the bondage. Leave the taskmasters behind. Get rid of the idols. Go out by the blood of the Lamb. That's Exodus. Then you have Leviticus. Leviticus is all about worship. We learn to worship by the blood of the Lamb. Now we learn that all our relationship to God depends on the blood of Christ. We're accepted because of the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit is sent to us because of Calvary. We are forgiven in our daily work, walk because of the blood of Christ. So all our approach to God is always, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. And Father, isn't that what you've said? Haven't you said, looking down at the cross, Thou, O Christ, art all I want? It's the blood. Leviticus teaches us that all our Christian worship now is to be on the basis of the blood. Never self-merits, never self-worth. Because everything we do is tainted. Then comes Numbers, the book of pilgrimage. And they're up and they're down, they're in and they're out, they're winning and they're losing. What a variegated lot of colours there are in the story of Israel's pilgrimage. When they trust, they win. When they doubt, they lose. See, that's Numbers. Learning to trust in the pilgrim warfare and walk. Numbers is our daily experience after conversion. As we trust, we win. When we fail to trust, we go down. Then comes Deuteronomy, which means the second law. Deutero to nomos law, the second law. In Exodus, we tarried by Sinai and felt condemned and we ran to the blood. At Deuteronomy, we're reminded, don't forget that though you're accepted now because of the blood, you should accept the commandments of God as the breathings of unutterable love in his mercy showing you how to live. And the Christian is illuminated. When he looks at the Ten Commandments the second time, he says, hey, they're not commandments at all, they're promises. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. You've come out of all that. The Ten Commandments are changed. Why are they changed? Because we reread the introduction. I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out. Now, Lord is God's covenant name. It occurs about 6,000 times. You don't find in Genesis 1, you only find Elohim, God. God is the name used for our maker, not in covenant relationship, but as the creator of the world. But Lord is the name always used in covenant relationship. So you first find it when man enters the scene in Genesis 2, and the Lord God made man of the dust of the ground. So this is Yahweh, Jehovah, which means the ever-living one who becomes our redeemer and our shepherd. So the introduction of the Ten Commandments to the enlightened eye of the rescued soul reads, I'm your redeemer and your creator. I've brought you out of the old life. You don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to kill anymore, steal anymore, commit adultery anymore, lie anymore, covet anymore. Thou shalt not. Promises. Promises. We discern that God in his mercy is telling us how to live. For the Ten Commandments tell us certain things about life. Number one, it tells us that life is causal and not casual. You know, most people in the world don't live, don't face reality. 
The masses don't want reality. The masses manufacture their own dream reality of what they want life to be like. The last thing they want to see is reality. Now, reality says actions have consequences. And that's what the Ten Commandments say. Life is causal, not casual. What you do matters. We can't afford to be careless about how we speak, how we think, what we read, how we sex, how we work, how we spend, how we loaf. We ought to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's all right to loaf, but know why you're loafing. Then and for how long and why. See? In other words, we've got to be beings in the image of God that know what's happening because actions have consequences. Most people will not face that. Millions in this country know that smoking may kill them. Millions know it. They still smoke. Millions in this country have learned that alcohol doesn't drown out our troubles, that our troubles are mighty good swimmers, but they still drink. And you know, 50 million people in this country at least are affected by alcohol because there are four people closely tied to every alcoholic on an average. So it's a tremendously big problem. But people, rather than face reality, they take alcohol. Rather than face reality, they'll binge on on this or that or the other. Even making money can be a binge. The Ten Commandments says actions have consequences. Life is not casual. Life is causal. You're a child of God. Be prayerful and careful. See? Now the next thing it says is put first first. Not first things first because things come last. Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbour's. That's last. First is no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Take the name of the Lord with reverence. Remember the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, to keep it holy. So the Ten Commandments say put first first. The 80-20 principle. It's taken us millenniums to wake up to this. Now there are whole books written on it. 80% of what we do is only 20% importance. You got sick tomorrow, it wouldn't matter for 80% of your duties. They could hang over. 20% of what you do has 80% importance. 20% of what you do is indispensable. Now the battle of life is keeping that 20% to the forefront. That's the battle of life. Putting first, first. God is first, family is next, people are third, and things are last. That's the order of the Ten Commandments. God, first four commandments, family, the fifth, people, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth. And things are mentioned in the tenth. God, family, other people, things. Woe to the person that puts things first and God last. The average American and the average Australian. More money is spent on cat food than on God in America. So, in Deuteronomy we learn of the second law. We learn that people are more important than things. That if we're living by faith, the law remains a standard, but it can't give us a perfect standing. We can't rely on it for salvation, but it's a good guide as to how to behave. Now we have salvation. Joshua, we're led by the man with the drawn sword into the promised land. There's the Christian taking possession. And what a land it was, a land of milk and honey. A land of giant fruitfulness. That's what the Christian life here is meant to be as we mature. And of course it's a picture of heaven. But heaven begins here. Its borders are right here. We're meant here to be spiritual giants. The fruit in our lives should be, should be giant fruit. Because of the man with the drawn sword that goes ahead of us. Read someday again the early verses in Joshua 1. If ever your spirit is wavering, and mine often does, It's good to read Joshua 1. 
Be not afraid. Be of good courage. Have I not commanded thee? I'll be with thee all the days of your life, as I was with Moses. Every step the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you. There's the foot rule. God's already given it. We've just got to take possession. Every place the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given to you. He's already given us the land. We've just got to take it by faith. By faith. So in the first six books of the Bible you have our picture, our biography. The most important lesson in all Bible study about ourselves to be gleaned in devotions is in the study of the Gospels. All the sick people represent us. All the miracles represent redemption. So there are the blind, there are the deaf, there are the dumb, the paralyzed. They all represent us sinners. Sinners are deaf to God, but God can heal the deaf. Sinners are blind to duty, but God can heal our sight. Sinners are paralyzed. Not me, Lord, I couldn't do that. But God can make the paralyzed whole. And every one of us is a leper in heaven's sight, but God can cleanse the lepers. So every miracle, every healing is a picture of how God helps the sinner. I love that one, I love that one of the deaf mute in Mark 7. They bring unto him one that is deaf and has an impediment in his speech. And he takes him by the hand and he leads him out of the cities. And he put his fingers in his ears and then he spat and he touched his tongue and he said, Father, and immediately his tongue was loose and he spake plain. Now, my friend, that's a great picture of us. We're all born deaf to the word of God. Therefore, we can't speak for him. You know, whenever a speech therapist finds someone has trouble with speech, they test their hearing. If you don't hear well, you usually can't speak well. So if we can't hear the word of God, we can't speak well, can't speak for him. It's a parallel like Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, man rebels against his maker. In Genesis 4, he kills his brother. The further you get from God, the further you get from your fellow men. It's like the spokes and the wheel. The more you get away from the hub, the further apart they are, see? So that's always the way. But get away from God, soon you're away from your fellow men. Try to kill God by making yourself God, then you'll kill your brother. He's a competitor. I don't need you, Joe. I've got the life belt. And so Scripture is forever trying to say, Thou art the man. Dog or no dog, you may do it. See yourself in the miracles, every one of them. They're all personalised when we read them aright. And the parables the same way. But the most important lesson in the Gospels is this that while they differ in their presentation of many things about the life of our Lord, they all agree on certain things. And I want you to notice some of these. In all the Gospels, Christ is betrayed. In all the Gospels, he's forsaken and, 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 and his friends flee, flee away. In all the Gospels, he's stripped. If you will look at all the things that are found in all four Gospels, they represent the normal likelihood for every follower of Christ. You cannot live the Christian life without sometimes being forced to walk the Calvary road. If you're going to live the Christian life, there will be a time when you'll be very lonely, where it'll even seem that close friends will forsake you, where it's as though they've stripped you of everything, but you've got to go it alone. So when you read the Gospels aright about Christ, you know that his divinity is something unique. But what happened to his humanity is something that happens to his followers too. And if we read the Gospels, we will find that. 
So when you read the Gospels or any of the books of the Bible, ask questions. What does it mean to me? What does it teach about God? What does it mean about my duties for the day? Make the reading personal. The book is meant to be that way. There are so many things we could have said extra today when we're talking about Bible study. I would have liked to talk to you a little bit about the fact that you need to look at the literature of the Bible. You see, some of the Bible is prose and some of it is poetry. If you don't make a distinction, you'll misinterpret. For example, the book of Isaiah says, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But do you remember what else it says about the lion? No lion shall be there. Now, if no lion shall be there, how shall it eat straw like the ox? Well, the answer is it's poetry. If you look at any modern version, the book of Isaiah, like most of the prophets, is written in poetry, and poetry uses metaphors and figures. So a lion represents a ravenous, dangerous beast, and there'll be none of those there. But the once ravenous lion will become as the lamb in the earth made new. So there's no contradiction at all. We do need to understand the literary genre, the literary form. Many Christians have long believed... Uh, that the story of, of Jonah, that inspired, wonderful story that our Lord re- alluded to, is really a parable about Israel. That Israel was told to go to the nations and refused, so it would be swallowed up by the great shark, the great whale of Babylon. And then in her penitence she'd be vomited forth in the restoration and go to minister to the world. Now why, does, why have some Christians thought that? Because they know that in Jewish literature there's what is known as Halakar and Haggadah, Halakar is the rules and regulations. Haggadah is stories. And among the Jews for millenniums, they have told stories to try and illustrate Halakar, what your duty is. Haggadah is the story form. And if you ask an educated Jew about the book of Jonah, he'll say that's Haggadah. It is a wonderful parable about Israel refusing to take the gospel to the nations, being swallowed up by Babylon, then vomited forth, to do her task. So that's a question you're going to have to ask yourself. Is this Haggadah? Is it a story? What does it teach? It's not enough to say what it says. I've heard many fundamentalists say, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that's it. They should ask, that's what it says, but what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, when Paul says, all things are yours, does that mean I can run off with your latest automobile? All things are yours. We must understand what is said by not enough to just say the Bible says it. What does it mean? What literary form is there? I would have liked to have talked to you about the law of first mention. In order to understand many significant themes of the Bible, you must go back to the first time it's mentioned. The first time it's mentioned is prophetic of all the later times. The first time Babel is mentioned is when men are in rebellion against God trying to make their own way up to heaven. Let us make us a name. Let us make us a tower that will fit into heaven. Isn't it funny? We don't know the names of any of them. Let us make us a name. It always fizzles out when you try to make your own way to heaven. But Babel, rebelling against God, trying to make their own way to heaven, depending on their own works to get up yonder, becomes the symbol of bad religion in the rest of the Bible, wherever Babylon figures. See, It's so important, this law of first mention. The word Megiddo occurs 13 times in Scripture. First time the number 13 occurs in Genesis 14, where it says certain kings served Kedalaoma 12 years, and the 13th year they rebelled. Number 13 is the number for rebellion in the Bible. 12 was the number of peaceful government. There were 12 disciples in the upper room, but Jesus was there, which meant that one of those disciples became the 13th person. 
the rebel, the Judas. Thirteenth time Megiddo is mentioned is in Revelation 16, Megiddo, Armageddon, when the whole world will be in rebellion against God. The law of first mention. Take, for example, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Here three words occur for the first time. Believed, counted or reckoned, and righteousness. Now, dear friends, there's the gospel in a nutshell. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, counted, ascribed, imputed to him for righteousness. First time those three words occur and that becomes typical of their usage throughout Scripture. The law of first mention. The significance of the number seven. The first time you find the number seven, it represents completion, perfection and rest. When you come to Revelation, you've got 50 of them. Because talking about the last things and the final rest. When we'll enter into the rest of the earth made new. I would have liked to talk to you about the different forms of poetry. The poetry in the Bible is not uh, like our poetry that rhymes with word endings, fortunately, because 99% of readers read the Bible through translations. So if Hebrew poetry rhymed like ours with word endings, we'd miss it. Hebrew poetry has a parallelism of thought. There's a synonymous structure where one line will say something, the second line will repeat the same thing with other words with synonymous words. That's the synonymous structure. Then there's the synthetic structure where one line says a thing and the next line builds it up and the next one builds it up further. Then there's the antithetic structure where one line says one thing and another says the opposite. Look at Psalm 37 with me for a second. Psalm 37. And we must stop in a moment and throw it open to your questions. Psalm 37. Uh, look at verse 2. This is a synonymous structure. For they will soon fade like the grass. That's what they call strophe 1, line 1. And wither like the green herb. You see how the second line has the same meaning? but just uses synonyms. They will soon fade like the grass, line 1. They'll wither like the green herb. Withers means the same as fade. Green herb is the same as grass. So there you have synonymous structure. Look at verse 6, it's the same. He'll bring forth your vindication as the light. There's line 1. He'll bring forth your right as the noonday. So right fits in with vindication, noonday fits in with light. That's synonymous. Look at verse 10. Yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. That's line 1. Though you look well at his place, he'll not be there. Same meaning, see, synonymous. Same in verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. See, Now look at one that's antithetic with opposites. Verse 9. For the wicked shall be cut off, but, see, now here's a contrast, an antithesis, but those who trust the Lord will possess the land. So that's not synonymous, that's the opposite. That's antithetic, you see. And if you want to look at a synthetic one, look at verse 4. Take delight in the Lord... And he will give you the desires of your heart. So here the second line is not identical with the first. It builds on it. That's synthetic. So here are the three types of poetry. Synonymous, where following lines say the same things using synonyms. Antithetic, where the second line gives an opposite viewpoint. Here's what happens to the wicked, but look what happens to the righteous. And then synthetic, where it builds up. Now you see the wonder. 
in translation, all that's preserved. And remember, four-fifths of the world now has some part of the Bible in their own language. Four-fifths of the world. I've talked too much. It's over to you for questions. We promised to let you go by eight, so we mustn't keep going. Please. Thank you. Yes, synthetic is where it builds. So after the first line, the next line, same vein, but it's building more on it. Delight thyself in the Lord, that's line one, and he'll give thee the desires of thine heart. That's not identical with line one, it builds on it. That's synthetic. Yes, please. Yes, yeah. Yes, um, let me give you an illustration, and I hope some of you will forgive me if this seems crude. In the book of Galatians, the issue was, did you have to become a Jew first to become a Christian? Or could anyone become a Christian without going through circumcision? See, So Paul says in one place, if you be circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, the fundamentalist attitude is the scripture says it, I believe it, that's it. But most of them are circumcised, so Christ profits them nothing. You follow me? It's not enough to say, what does it say? You must ask, what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says that? He's saying, if you think you've got to become a Jew first in order to become a Christian, if you're going to put your trust in rights like circumcision as the basis of your relationship to God, you've missed it. See? So it's not enough to say what it says. Let me give you an example. The book of James says, and so we see that faith just uh, works just fine, not faith only. Oh, that's the opposite of Paul. But in James, faith always means mental assent, not commitment. So he says, the devils believe but tremble. The devils have faith but tremble. So the faith in James is a faith of profession and it's not a reality. Whereas in Paul, faith is a living commitment to God. See, And the works in James are unlike the works in Paul. When Paul talks about works, he's usually talking about dead works of people trying to earn salvation. But James is talking about the good works that are the result of salvation. So it's not enough to say, what does it say? What's it mean? 